the importance of having a common set of facts, it means that less powerful people can challenge power because they have a basis on which to do so. You can kind of appeal to something that is outside of power to say that you, you might be powerful, but you can't kind of change what the facts are. That there are ways for confronting economic, social, political, cultural power because power can't necessarily dictate the facts, even if it can dictate lots of other things. You know, that, that's sort of an idealized view, but I think it's kind of interesting. And his point was, if the ability to create reality and to create your own sets of facts just becomes another function of power, you know, just a function of who has the money and the resources to be able to put a alternate set of facts out there that is going to be believable to enough of the public, then that sort of sets back a lot of the progress that we've made in trying to come up with democratic ways of holding the powerful to account. It's necessarily a less democratic world in which you can do that because it's a world in which it's even more difficult than it is now to challenge the powerful. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Where they've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio glass looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHOS stores at the top of the hour, and also on 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today's episode We'll be talking about rhetoric, specifically political rhetoric with Rob Goodman. He is an assistant professor of politics and public administration at Ryerson University. And he has worked as a speechwriter for U.S. House and Senator positions. He also released a book called Words on Fire. And yeah, as you can expect, today's episode will be on political rhetoric. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, review, like, share the show, every bit helps. Go to podcasttheway.com. Without further ado, I'll play the episode. You can't really swear if you're a politician. I mean, maybe you'll see those interviews where they'll ask them, what's your favorite swear word? But like, can swearing be used in rhetoric to make your dialogue sound better? Yeah, yeah. Any kind of, I mean, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about swearing is, you know, what what counts as a, as a swear word is just is always changing. And the culture is always kind of trying to catch up to that. You know, I think it's called, I think it's called swearing. Uh, because when it it originated, you would you would use some kind of oath that was sort of uh, religious in nature, and it was the kind of thing that people would would swear on in a you know in, in a court of law or when they were promising oh, yeah. they were telling the truth. And if you were but if you were using it in regular conversation, uh, that was sort of blasphemous. So you know a lot of the original swears were religious in nature. Um, I remember from uh, I took a Shakespeare class I think in college, and you know when when characters are in like a really heightened state of emotion, they'll say something like you know God's blood or God's wound or you know, something that is really um, that's important in Christianity and sort of an important kind of religious concept kind of taken out of context. So I think the interesting thing is I, I'm sure you know it, it's not generally um, the thing to do for politicians to, uh, to to you know to drop the f bomb for instance, but I do think that uh, what counts as uh, you know, what counts as swearing and what counts as vulgar, like that, that's always changing. And I imagine that the politicians, I haven't looked at it, but I imagine the politicians are a little bit more casual 
in in their use of language that might have been considered vulgar a generation ago because what's considered vulgar is always changing. And I was thinking of someone like Beto O'Rourke. Um, I think you know when he was running for president, he uh, you know he dropped a couple of f bombs. Um, As campaigns yeah. or like on the news. Oh, well, you know, I think um, talking to the press. Um, you know, I think you'd say things like you know what the bleep when he was talking to the press. And but I, th- I think the interesting thing is he was in the context of talking about um, gun violence in the U.S. and mass shootings. And I think you know the, he was being pretty deliberate about it. He was trying to kind of capture his feeling of uh, outrage or or shock or whatever. And you know, I, I think. In some respects, it came off as a little calculated. In some respects, people might have seen it as, as sort of an authentic expression of emotion. But, you know, swear words are like any other words that you use them to um, try to give your audience a sense of your, your your mental state or the mental state you want them to think that you have. I mean, even like for radio, I have to follow FEC guidelines, so I can't swear unless it's after 10 p.m. But I feel like that's almost a form of censorship. But at the same time, I could easily maneuver around the F-bomb or whatever swear I want to say. Mm-hmm. But back um, so like rhetoric originated from Rome. So back then everybody was very Christian. It was very like like any swear was seen as like a pure sin. Well, I guess, you know, I'm I'm talking about in my book, I, I talk about Cicero and, and ancient Roman rhetoric, and this is before Christianity was was a thing. Um, so you know, Rome doesn't become kind of a, a Christian empire until later in like the uh you know, three hundreds or four hundreds AD. So in, in Cicero's time. You know, he's someone that I'm interested in, in writing about and study the book, and he's one of the most so I study in my book, and he's one of the most important people in the history of rhetoric. Um, you know, he's, he's writing in a different religious context. I can't think about um, you know what would have counted as as vulgar or swearing for him. I guess my point is just it sort of depends based on 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 the context. So when I think about when he talks about examples of um, what counts as as, as a vulgarity or out there language and speech, um, you know, I'd have to take a closer look, but I think that things, you know, it's always something that your culture considers important. So even if it wasn't, uh, you know, Christianity, because this is before Christianity, it might've been things to do with with the, the ancient Roman religion or things that people kind of consider sacred. And when you take those out of context and put them to a different context, that's often, you know, where, where people look when they're looking for uh, vulgarity and other kind of terms that, that are meant to shock. Gotcha. And you said he was your favorite or most impactful in terms of rhetoric. What made him so unique versus anyone else? Well, um, I, I think that he's someone who was tremendously influential in the history of of Western rhetoric. You know, one of the reasons is because he's he's a famously eloquent person himself. You know, he, he um, is sort of known as the best orator uh, of his time and of the Roman age. And he's someone who speaks and practices rhetoric in just every context, from from being in uh, public trials to speaking in front of the Senate to speaking in front of the Roman people. He's someone who uh, is is a practitioner of rhetoric. But but one of the reasons I look at him as well is because he also writes about the theory of it. He writes about what it means to be eloquent, uh, what what role eloquence and rhetoric ought to play in politics, um, how they've changed over time. Um, and he also writes it at a time of, of political crisis. You know, his career spans the sort of end period or, or the crisis period of the Roman Republic when the political order is falling apart around him. And he's trying to grapple with what kind of role is there for persuasion and public speaking um, in the middle of a political crisis. And I think that that's just really, um, it's illuminating to see how he makes sense of that crisis. And I think it also speaks to people now um, who have a sense of, of political instability or, or crisis or worry looking at how people have dealt with 
obviously much worse, but still kind of on the spectrum kinds of political crisis in the past. And I think Cicero is just really unparalleled in how he talks about the relationship between uh, rhetoric and crisis and political breakdown. In terms of crisis, I told you how I took a course in high school on rhetoric. And one of the things I remember from that course, I don't know why, but they showed us a comic to start off the course. And it's something like the guy's putting his head in a lion's mouth and he has like a rhetoric t-shirt on or the line is labeled rhetoric. And he says something like, all right, now to pull out another trick, if there is one. I think the idea was something like rhetoric is sort of a trick or is it just good or bad? Does it have a purpose? Yeah, well, that that's something that people have thought about as long as there's been a history of it, that, that there have been a lot of people who have said that because rhetoric is, is the study of persuasion because it's the study of how to convince people of something that you want them to be convinced of. There have been a lot of people who have been naturally suspicious that it's about tricking people um, to do what you want. It's about using verbal trickery to get what you want. That if you really were sort of honest and direct and authentic, you really wouldn't need to study persuasion because um, you you just say what you meant. And I think that that's still tremendously appealing when people talk about the problems of rhetoric and politics today. And you, you, you think about polit- politicians today who, even if they've they've tested and focus grouped and, and pulled their messages, still want to give that impression of speaking from the heart because people think of it as more as more uh, truthful, um, more authentic. That goes hand in hand because you know how people already disrupt politicians and then mm-hmm. here's a tool to feed into that disruption. So yeah, I can see that. Right, right. But I think I think the response is that you know when people have studied and, and defended learning rhetoric, there, there are a couple of things you can say in response to that idea. You know, one is that as as Aristotle wrote, you know, at the beginning of his his book on rhetoric, that was really foundational for for Cicero and for much later study of rhetoric. You know, he writes that um, one people who study the arts of persuasion uh, and have bad intentions towards you, people who want to manipulate and exploit you, are going to learn how to use these things. So you need to learn how to resist them, and you need to learn how to fight back. You could think about it as sort of a martial art, in the sense that um, if principled good people don't study it. Um, the only people who have this advantage will be unprincipled bad people. But I think the other part of it that, that Cicero and, and later Roman thinkers on rhetoric also talk about is the ways in which studying rhetoric can actually make you a better person, can be a better education in what it is to be a citizen with other people. And part of the reason there is that learning how to persuade people doesn't necessarily mean learning how to trick them. It means learning how to pay attention to them. Uh, it means learning how to think about what they value, uh, what they want, uh, what kind of arguments work on them, um, meeting people where they are and engaging with them in a way that can bring them over to your side in a non-violent, non-coercive way, um, and doing it in a way that promotes your your own virtue, which is something that the Cicero and Ed Roman thinkers on rhetoric made a lot, uh, you know, put a lot of emphasis on. So I think that, that part of the response to the idea of rhetoric being a, a trick or, or something that's only useful in the heads of bad people is that there's a long tradition of arguing that studying it is actually a kind of moral training that can um, make you a better person. In terms of like detecting bad rhetoric or manipulation, is there a rule of thumb? Like if I see a politician on the news or if I see the news itself saying something, are there pointers I can look out to try to detect if I'm being manipulated? Yeah, it, it's it's really hard. Um, I, and this is something that I struggle with and that a lot of scholars of rhetoric struggle with too, is kind of figuring out a clear-cut way to say what's the difference between persuasion that, that's fair, manipulation that's uh, that's not fair, that that's manipulative. 
And and I think um, I think one of the things that that we talk about when we study rhetoric is that manipulation is is something it's the kind of persuasion that happens where um, you can't really own your reasons for changing your mind. You can't really give a rational account of why it is that you changed your mind. If someone just pushed your buttons in a sense and you find yourself agreeing with them, but you can't really um, explain step by step how you got there because you've been sort of won over by um, by by an argument that kind of just plays on your emotions or by some kind of trick that it's often hard to explain after the fact how you got there. Um, I think another thing to look for is you know, do speakers um, hold themselves to the same standards they, they want to hold their audience to? Are, are they kind of honest in other parts of their lives? And, and does the do the arguments that they draw on seem you know misleading or, or not misleading? You know, I think about um, you know, examples of, of arguments over vaccines that we're having around COVID. You know, I, I think that some people who have positions against, um, uh, you know, vaccine mandates, for instance, are probably really sincere about that. But then I think about people who are clearly vaccinated themselves and want other people not to get vaccinated because that drives up their market share. And that's sort of a political niche they're calling out, they're, they're, they're carving out. That strikes me as a place to look for manipulative rhetoric because they aren't holding themselves to the same standard they want other people to live up to. Um, and that strikes me as a place you can look to the you know, the character of the people involved to see whether or not they, they sincerely mean what they're talking about. And that's appealing to the emotion. That's, if I remember correctly, there's like three parts of rhetoric. There's the ethos, the pathos, and the logos. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what I was talking about there was was um, the idea of of ethos. And ethos is, that this is sort of an idea that Aristotle develops and that other people take on later on. It's, uh, what kind of character are you? Um, are you trustworthy? And, and the reason it matters is because oftentimes when someone is is trying to persuade you, they're not just trying to get you to accept, to agree with them on a certain issue. They're trying to get you to accept their judgment on things that you might not have access to, you might not be aware of. You just, they're asking to place their, their trust in you, especially when they're political figures. So ethos is sort of about figuring out the trustworthiness and goodwill of someone you're engaged with, uh, of someone you're listening to. So when Aristotle talks about ethos, a couple of things that he points to are, one, does this person have you know the the best interest of the audience at heart? Is this person looking out for me, or is he just looking out for himself? And that's part of thinking about ethos. Um, other things you know along those lines are sorry to cut you off quick, but yeah, the ethos reminds me of a uh, you ever hear the axe that convinced the trees it was on their side because the handle was made out of wood. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I, I have heard of that. Yeah, that's kind of it's, it's sort of this. Kind of, um, yeah, of identification of, um, you know, just because someone shares some kind of outward characteristics with you doesn't necessarily mean they have their best, your best interest at heart. And part of part of learning rhetoric is learning to recognize these things, learning to recognize um, when someone can kind of appeal to something superficial like that, like, look, we're both from the same town, or look, we both work in the same industry, or, or look, we're both the same race or the same gender or whatever it is, and, and recognizing that that doesn't always guarantee that someone has your interest at heart. I think I cut you off a bit. I think you're just going to start talking about pathos or you're going to start another direction. Oh, well, I was just, I was just going to say that, that when Aristotle talks about ethos, what he's talking about is that it has to do with showing that you have goodwill uh, towards the audience um, and, and demonstrating that you're trustworthy in the course of trying to persuade them. And that's, that's when you look for manipulation, it's really important to look for uh, these sort of signs that the person just strikes you as trustworthy. And when it comes to uh, persuasion, I think of like two things, like one, I think of, like climate change, like 
it seems real evident that climate change is destroying the planet. People will use rhetoric to try to persuade the population, say, hey, climate change is this real threat we need to address and fix. And that could be the good side of rhetoric. And then the other side, um, say flat earth. That's an easy one to come think about or QAnon. One of like mm-hmm. those where like it's the same rhetoric, like, hey, we need to follow this cause. But it's the yin to the yang that is the climate change argument. You ever see that TED talk, the start with the why? No, I haven't. So apparently he has some criticism, but it's sort of like one example I remember is companies will try to sell you, uh, oh, here's this great new phone or here's this great new technology and they want you to buy it. But then mm-hmm. what Apple did was say, oh, no, you need this new iPhone. Like you need this. You, they appeal to the emotion side. So it's it becomes like this must have kind of argument. And that's where you were saying the emotion side. That's sort of like them advertising to appeal to our emotions. So we don't even think logically about some things. We just feel like we have to, we just have to do it against reason or we have to do something against logic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the, the place that most people encounter attempts to persuade them in, in regular life. Of course, there's, you know, there, there's political rhetoric and campaigns that happen every once in a while. And there's also, um, <clears throat> there's, there's also social media where people, you know, organized around politics. But I think the main place where people kind of encounter persuasive speech or persuasive media is around advertising and, and commerce and, and convincing people they need things. Um, and so I think the, the, the kind of, because I think the most money is at stake, the most kind of detailed and advanced study of what persuades people and what works to get the audience to think about themselves as a certain kind of person by buying a product, to get people to see the certain kind of product as representing about them something about themselves, uh, to create needs and wants, you know, all these things happen probably more so in advertising than they do in politics. And of course, people in politics are always paying attention to the developments in the study of persuasion in advertising. And there's sort of a, I think there's very much a, a back and forth between the worlds of commerce and the worlds of politics as people develop new techniques of, of uh, persuasion. But the interesting thing to me is that your know, rhetoric initially develops um, not really in, in commerce, but in politics. It's, it's about making collective decisions. It's about what are we going to do as a group on an issue that affects us. Um, and of course, the kind of rhetoric that gets practiced in, you know, in, in commercial advertising is different because that's not necessarily about what collective decision are we going to make. It's what decision am I going to make as an individual? And really, rather than some sort of you know, life or death issue, it's, it's around you know, what am I going to spend my disposable income on? Um, so a lot of the techniques you know, carry over but kind of, I think the kind of fundamental context, what, what rhetoric is for and what it does to people is, is different. And, and just as sort of being an informed citizen, you know, especially meant in the times when, when rhetoric was first being developed, it meant listening to speeches, it meant thinking about the techniques of persuasion and how they're being used and then whether they're being used legitimately. I think now being an informed citizen also involves, you know, taking that critical attitude towards people trying to persuade you to spend your money in one way or the other. I think that's why you, you mentioned taking a rhetoric class in high school. I think that's just why it's, it's so great for you know, people to be exposed to that kind of stuff um, when they're becoming adults, because so much of life is thinking critically about uh, people who want to get you to do something, um, not necessarily manipulating you, but trying to, trying to persuade you and control your actions. 
I remember one thing that was really formative for me is I think in elementary school, there were, one of the teachers uh, had a day talking about different advertising techniques and the different kinds of ways advertisers try to uh, get you to buy something. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a, a hermit and never buy anything and that all advertising is illegitimate, but it means that that you have to learn how to take a critical eye towards it. You have to learn how to think about it um, as someone who's a target of persuasion and not just someone from the perspective of, oh, well, you know, the friendly Apple company is helping me out and helping me get what I need to be a, a fully rounded human being. Yeah. All right. To move towards politics, you mentioned a little bit there. Um, you were a speechwriter for some politicians, correct? Yeah, that's right. I, I worked um, in uh, Congress in D.C. for about five years. I worked for Chris Dodd, who was a senator from Connecticut. And then I worked for Cindy Hoyer, uh, who was an, and still is uh, the number two uh, Democrat in the House. So I um, I was in politics uh, writing speeches from about, uh, I want to say, 2006 to about 2011. So sort of the tail end of the Bush years and the beginning of the Obama years. So um, it, it was a really interesting time to be around. Um, and I really, you know, as someone who studies and works on rhetoric now, it was a real pleasure to uh, actually get to do some of it and, and to try to um, actually um, do it as a practice and not just as a study. Yeah, it sounds pretty exciting. What caused you to leave it? Like, why do you stop? Um, well, a few things. You know, one, I really, I wanted to be an academic and a scholar. I wanted to do my own writing. I wanted to, um, uh, you know, sort of work work for myself in a sense and not for someone else. It's also, you know, it, it's a very, um, it, it's a high stress job. And I think the people who tend to do it are, are often younger because it really sort of burns you out after a while. It's a lot of, um, it's a really, uh, intense kind of pace of work, which is you know, something you can do in your 20s, but didn't really feel sustainable for me in the long haul. But I think mainly I just wanted to be, you know, writing on behalf of someone else and and trying to find words to explain the, the positions that they're taking for whatever reason. Um, it, it's important. And for the most part, I agree with what I was doing, but I really felt that there's a kind of thinking for yourself and writing for yourself that is more possible when you're an academic or some other kind of writer than it is when you're you're writing on someone else's behalf. So I, I really, um, it, it was a pleasure to be there and do it. But after a while, I really wanted to, um, uh, you have the kind of independence you can't really get when you're working someone else's office. Fair enough. And you didn't feel like you were um, skewing the information or you were like writing fake words that are going to be like broken promises. You felt like it was actual good writing. Like the politicians actually were trying to do what they were saying. Yeah, well, I, I feel like that's true for the most part. I also think it's um, it's sort of the, the nature of politics that so much is um, that you know even even assuming that everyone's everyone's honest, and I don't think I really recall having to do anything dishonest when I was there. But I think even within honesty, there there's so much about persuasion is, is what kind of spin you put on things, and people kind of use spin like it's a uh, like it's a dirty word. I don't I don't really think about it so, that so much. It's just that in, in any kind of situation that is complex part of how you make sense of it is deciding what, what kind of facets of it you're going to orient towards. Um, and that kind of grows out of your, it grows out of your political priorities. It grows out of your values. It grows out of your sense of, of what's right and what kind of vision you have for the country, you know, which means that, that any kind of fact can be put into a lot of different contexts that, that lead you to come with different conclusions for it. So I think a lot of what, I, I did as someone who's trying to engage in political persuasion was I, I don't ever think of myself as doing anything dishonest, but I do think that that just the nature of political persuasion is making the best case possible for you 
for yourself um, out of out of a common set of facts. Uh, you know, it, not not much different from what a lawyer would do, who would try to put the best case forward for his or her client. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you know one thing that's a lot more damaging is sort of the sort of rise of, of fake news and alternative facts and the idea that we, we're not arguing how to interpret a set of facts anymore. Now we're arguing over what the facts even are in the first place. And that gets really, um, uh, that, that sort of breaks down the possibility of persuading each other even more than it was broken um, w- when I was around. But I think that's sort of a different issue. Yeah, I want to bring that up in a minute, actually, because that's so important with what's going on today. But you just remind me of, I talked with a Simon Anhalt. He's worked with like, prime ministers, presidents, he's talked to Putin, like all across the world. And he's met more than 100 of politicians. One of the things he said that was interesting to me was he's only met about two politicians who he believed weren't doing what they were doing for the best interests of the people. He said that, uh-huh. like everybody he met on all sides, they thought they were doing the right thing. Just it's how they maybe like spun it or their perspective on how to approach an issue. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, I think that most, uh, you know, I, I could report something similar. I think most people think that they're genu- genuinely doing something in the common good, which is why they want to be in politics. You know, of course, I, I think the thing that gets more complicated is that you can justify a, a lot of things that are objectively harmful uh, as being in the common good as well. Um, you know, I remember um, one of the interesting things, and I, I, I certainly don't think modern politics is anything like 1984. But when I read Orwell's book, one of the things that really stuck with me was the idea that even in a, in a um, horribly corrupt and oppressive system, uh, he was making the point that generally the people uh, at the top of a system like that, uh, even them, even they believe their own propaganda. They, they genuinely believe that what they're doing is sort of in the interest of human liberation in the long run. So you know that, that's a very extreme example. But what I found is a much less you know, extreme version of that, which is that on any side of the political spectrum, um, in any range of, of views, for the most part, people I think don't really uh, aren't as cynical as you would think. That they genuinely believe the messages that they're putting out to the public. You know, obviously, not all of them can be simultaneously true, and a lot of the messages that people believe are, are based on um, values and principles and ideas that I think are really harmful. But I think that even kind of at the, the further ends of the political spectrum, uh, among the more extreme. Um, uh, public figures, I still think that they, they for the most part, genuinely believe what they're saying. I don't think anyone sets out to, um, you know, to not anyone, but for the most part, I think there, there are fewer grifters and a lot more true believers out there than you might think, um, which is both sort of relieving because you know, no one is, is quite as cynical as the worst characters would suggest, but it's also a little more disturbing because it's sort of easy to you know, expose someone who's obviously grifting and obviously cynical and, and obviously doesn't mean what they're saying. And I think people can pick up on that over time. I think it's a lot more difficult to expose or, or to point out when someone has you know, dangerous or wrong or, or immoral beliefs, uh, but never, nevertheless um, believes them very sincerely. That's a bit of a more complicated situation that I think a lot of people's kind of intuitive take on politicians doesn't really prepare them for. Yeah, I find that really interesting because, like, I mean, as a common person, I always think, well, how can you have our best interests when you're getting bought out by this oil company, you're getting bought out by this person, and you see their net worth is worth hundreds of millions outside of book deals and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess it makes sense because you want to do, most people care about other people, I guess. And if they think what they're doing is right, actually, I don't know. It just seems like you can't have one without the other. 
Yeah, yeah, I think I think that this is sort of really hard too. But I also think that um, um, when it comes to the question of motives, it's really um, it's it's really difficult. I think because especially rhetoric is about um, it's about presenting a public self. It's about you know it, it showing a kind of ethos, a kind of persona in person to you know to to the public that is not necessarily your your real authentic self if there is such a thing that you have in private it's about very much taking on a role and playing a role um again which i don't think makes it cynical or dishonest but it means that rhetoric is a very different thing than the kind of conversations interactions we do in in regular life um and i guess i i think if, if more people were, were aware of that i think if there are kind of more awareness that, that rhetoric is an art that it's something that is different from other kinds of communication that it involves um you know uh theatricality uh, and spectacle and emotion and pathos and so on. Um, I think people would be better consumers of it. I think they'd be more critical about um, what's actually going on in actual attempted persuasion. And again, I don't think everyone always picks up on that. You know, I was interested in the idea of um, a persona, which which persona is a a, a Latin word the Romans used. Um, And it's about, you know, it it gives us our word person. but it originally, I think, comes from the word for for a mask. It's it's a, a kind of role that you take on in public that not is not necessarily you in your authentic, sincere self, but it's the kind of public role you're playing, and that you might play a public role as an orator, or a listener, or a citizen, or a politician, uh, or a spectator, whatever it is. That doesn't you know doesn't sum up everything that you are. It's a role that you take on and play, and that you can put down when it's over. Uh, and I think they had a much. I think that's a healthier attitude towards persuasion than. You know the idea that um, anything other than kind of opening your heart and kind of speaking in a hundred percent authenticity is the only way that persuasion ought to happen. Um, I, I think the Romans had a much kind of more relaxed and healthy attitude to what persuasion could be about. Okay, I get that. All right, so say there's a presidential debate going on tomorrow, or say a politician is on the news. If I'm watching a Democrat or Republican, is there a certain style of rhetoric the typical will use? Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I I couldn't like say kind of as a as a blanket statement. I think you could definitely say that the parties kind of have their own styles of um, what they kind of look for in a leader and how leaders want to present themselves to the public. You know, I was thinking about the uh, 2016 presidential debates that um, I was watching the uh, the, the debates uh, between Trump and the other Republican candidates. And then in 2016, there were debates between um, uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and some other um, um, you know, some other, uh, also rands in the primary there. Um, so one thing was the staging, um, you know, the, the Republican debates were kind of staged much more like a spectacle that there was in one of these, I think it was at the Reagan library. Um, air force one was like parked in the background. I was, it was almost sort of like this is the staging for some kind of a game show or this idea that, that part of what makes the presidency sort of, you know, dramatic and glamorous is that you get to command all the military hardware, including your own kind of plane, uh, you know, very much in a way that kind of, I think, played into kind of Trump's uh, persona as someone who always flew around in, in private private planes and um, was someone who was not really an, an ordinary person, but was some kind of spectacularly uh, wealthy titan of industry kind of person, the kind of character he played on TV in a sense. And I also think that there was a lot more, um, you know, there's a lot more personal insult. You think about, uh, I think even, uh, you know, Trump and Marco Rubio went back and forth on uh, on on penis size, if you can believe that. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that came up. It was a presidential you know, debate. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that, that happened. And back debates, as I remember, um, you know, were, were a lot more wonkier. I don't think that they're, 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 the background was sort of neutral. Um, 
the uh, arguments were a lot more about the details of things like healthcare policy. It was sort of, I, I thought about it as being conducted at a more kind of intellectual level, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's better uh, because, you know, I think part of the reason is, is what that kind of wonky approach to politics leaves out is the idea that that's not the only way to connect with people. And there's some people who find that uh, alienating um, and that politicians are only as successful as, as they're able to persuade people to, to let them be successful. So I, but I think the other thing contributing to that is the idea that the parties are, um, dealing with, with different demographics. They, they have different coalitions that are different sizes. You know, one thing that's really dramatically changed uh, over time is this, this phenomenon called educational polarization. Um, the idea that um, years of education or, or degrees completed you know, correlate pretty strongly with being more likely to be Democrat than Republican. Now, that doesn't mean that the Democrats are necessarily smarter people than Republicans, but it means that there's some kind of connection between um, being in higher education and generally having more liberal policies. And that could be, it could be a cultural thing. It could be a, uh, it could be the effect of education. It could be that the politics, it, or, or it could be an effect on education. The people who are more liberal want to go on to higher education and further degrees. But, you know, so, so there's a lot of argument of what causes this phenomenon. But I think what's not really an argument is that this phenomenon exists. So I think that when you see the parties doing different kind of styles and approaches to what their candidates are arguing about and how they're arguing. One thing to keep in mind is that at least you know, in, in the primary phase, they're very much appealing to different audiences. They're very much appealing to different kinds of groups of people. And you know, th there are other things as well. You know, th there's the fact that um, the Republican coalition is more racially homogenous. The Democratic coalition is more uh, racially diverse. Although interestingly enough, in the last election, some of that kind of reversed itself. Some of the, the educational polarization reduced the um, racial polarization so that I think you know, on the margins, you know, still people of color you know, are overwhelmingly Democratic voters in the U.S., but slightly more of them, uh, slightly more of, of African-Americans and Hispanic Americans um, voted for Trump in 2020 than did in 2016, um, which, which again is really interesting. And people have spilled a lot of ink trying to figure out, well, why is this? What, what are Democrats doing to alienate these voters? And I think for the most part, um, these voters that are people of color that are slightly more marginally likely to support a Republican now, um, I think for the most part tend to be uh, working class voters and uh, male voters. So Democrats have had to figure out or had to think about, um, is it that by, you know, are the results of things like educational polarization or the results of things like gender polarization um, having some kind of confounding effects to reduce uh, racial polarization. And of course, you know, we only get data points every few years, and it's really going to be interesting to see what happens in the midterm in the next presidential election. But um, this is sort of one of the really more interesting, and I think to traditional ideas of, of racial politics, the U.S. kind of puzzling developments to come out of the last election. And again, while it was not as if Trump got any kind of majority uh, of, of uh, people of color to vote for him, the shifts among them, the kind of shifts on the margins, um, were close enough to make it a much closer election than I think a lot of people anticipated just looking at the polls going into it. Yeah, because it's actually interesting because during that time of the election, that's when the George Floyd situation happened. And the Democrats, I remember even during the primaries, that was a huge push was how can we appeal to different colors and different races and different demographics? Yet then when the time came, you kind of saw a flip flop where the Democrats got more white votes than in 2016. But then they lost a lot of their uh, colored population folks is that you kind of said it could be as a result of the working class growing or being 
becoming a part of that working class but could it also be the rhetoric where people don't want to say hey i want your vote or they don't want to be sort of appealed to i guess well i think it's really you know i'm not an expert on this issue but i think there are a lot of views out there i can kind of tell you what some of the views are so um i don't know if you've heard of david shore but he's a pollster who works on some of these issues around um educational polarization and part of the argument that he has made is that um a lot of voters of color in the U.S. are, are relatively culturally conservative on things like uh, even on immigration, on things like uh, you know the defund the police uh, message. Um, and his argument was that a lot of people of color in the U.S., even if they're traditionally Democrats, found Democrats' positions on things like defunding the police um, and um, more open immigration uh, to be sort of disturbing positions, and were willing to either sit it out or to vote for Republicans in some places because they were turned off by those messages. Um, so that's one view. And that would basically say that it's need to moderate on things like policing and cultural issues and immigration if they want to reverse this slide. The other view is basically that, you know, you talk about the George Floyd protests. I think the other view is that these um, were tremendously mobilizing. These were sort of the biggest protest movement by numbers in US history. And that the fact that that happened immediately before the election is one of the things that drove the election to kind of record highs of turnouts. So that if Democrats might have lost some voters on the margins, they, they made up for it by mobilizing and turning out people who were reluctant to vote. Um, and the Democrats would be more wise to actually follow through on what they said about things like police reform uh, rather than doing nothing sort of out of fear of, of provoking a cultural backlash. And, you know, I, I think that there are the sort of plausible arguments on both sides. And again, I don't really have enough handle on the data to say which one I find more convincing, other than to say that this is, um, you know, still in the, in the early stages. It's not as if, um, you know, U.S. politics are totally racially depolarized and race doesn't have any kind of bearing on partisanship. But I do think that people have seen the early signs of a change in orientation between race and voting, and people are going to be interested to see if it keeps up. So people are still on the limited data they have trying to come up with explanations for if, what Democrats want to do if they still want to be a majority party. Keeping in mind that the other thing that makes it difficult in the U.S. is that so many institutions um, like gerrymandered districts, uh, like you know the Senate's overrepresentation of rural white states, um, you know, like the, the underrepresentation of, of urban centers, all these things make it hard uh, for Democrats to control a majority of political power, uh, even when they have a majority of, of um, of the popular vote or a majority of the population supporting them. So that's sort of an additional hurdle to a party that is more urban centers. Then in terms of a lot of politicians, people feel like are just saying these same sort of bland answers or basic rhetoric without pushing any boundaries. And I guess that's where Trump sort of had this big appeal because he was the exact opposite in terms of his rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So I guess how in terms of rhetoric, where's the difference between your like generic politician who says generic stuff, I guess, or somebody like Trump or Bernie or somebody who sort of is the extreme in terms of what they say? Well, I think that, you know, when I talk about in, in my book, uh, and it's called Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions, and it just came out uh, uh, recently. One of the things I talk about in my book is the relationship between rhetoric and, and risk taking. Um, and this is something I get from Cicero and from the ancients who thought about rhetoric and eloquence. The idea being that there, there's sort of a bargain in, in a ideal rhetorical situation between the public and the speaker that 
the speaker has to take on some kind of risks that it could go badly. The speaker has to say something that sort of um, is is uh, has the potential of, of going badly or losing face. That there's a lot that the speakers put on the line when they try to persuade the public, and, and the public just in the act of listening and maybe changing its mind is taking on risk itself because the risk is that you your beliefs might change, your your story about who you are might change, your your uh, previous commitments and ideas about who you are as a citizen, as a person might get called into question. So when things are working well, both parties this exchange, the, the speaker and the audience are kind of putting something on the line. Um, but I think in in day-to-day politics, we don't really see politics living up to that ideal. I think it's a lot easier um, for politicians to generally kind of pursue a risk-averse strategy, the strategy of making sure that what they're going to say is really likely to be approved before they say it. And these are all the ways that, that politicians try to make rhetoric more systematic. Um, by uh, by polling, by by using uh, data mining and data tracking, by voter tracking, uh, by focus grouping their statements, by um, uh, you know simply by not taking risks in what they say because it, it, there's not really much reward for risky public speech. And I think people sort of react against that. I think they see this um, unwillingness of most mainstream politicians to take risks in what they say. You know they see this as as, as a little bit offensive because it kind of violates the spirit of this bargain between the public and speakers, because it seems as if it makes this rhetorical exchange between the people and people who speak to them uh, even less equal than it already is. So you know, what I go on to say in the book is I think this means that there's an opening for people you know, like Trump, who you mentioned, whose speech is just really, really uh, appears at least, um, really, really out there, spontaneous, making it up on the cuff, uh, off the cuff, um, uh, risky always seems like he's about to put his foot in his mouth or say something incriminating or embarrassing or ridiculous. Um, no, I think in reality, when you look at it more closely, Trump isn't really taking that many risks because he's speaking to an audience that can't really, um, that, it, that isn't going to reject him, that he sort of selects the audience to, for people who's already going to agree to him, with him. He's already speaking within a bubble anyway. But I do think that, that the way he speaks and approaches the public sounds so different than the way an ordinary politician speaks that that's a tremendous part of his appeal. And I think that people are so, are too quick to write him off um, as sort of a, uh, you know, you know buffoonish character um, who's just, you know, beneath any kind of serious interest. And I think that that's a mistake because I don't think you can really understand his appeal as a public figure without understanding if people listen to him and react, you know, by saying things, oh, well, someone's finally telling like it is, or someone's finally speaking from, you know, from the heart, or someone is really finally, um, not sounding like a politician. I think that especially for people who are sort of casual consumers of politics, that difference really matters. So it's worth exploring where that difference comes from um, and why that difference exists and why people find that difference so appealing. You know, even as I suggest, it's ultimately kind of a mirage. It still is a difference. Seeing that difference, I've heard people, they either say Trump's one of two things. One, a complete moron buffoon who has no idea what he's saying, or two, some 4D chess mastermind who knows exactly what he's saying. And that's why he says stuff that doesn't like make sense at times. Yeah. I, I don't think it's either. I don't think it's really either of those things. I don't think he is. Um, I, I don't know. I think that sort of, you know, liberals have a tendency to paint anyone who isn't a liberal uh, as sort of a, a, as dumb or some kind of buffoon. I remember when, when that was the same kind of argument around George W. Bush when I was younger and you heard that all the time. I, I just don't think one, I don't think it's a very, um, it's impossible to say because you don't really know much about a politician other than who they are in public. Uh, I imagine that Trump is not exactly a rocket scientist, but I just think that um, that, that, that talking about uh, how intelligent he is or how intelligent politicians you, you do or don't like are 
is sort of overstating the role of intelligence in politics, at least as something that kind of attracts voters and that promotes identification with them. So I don't know if he is, uh, I, I, I don't think he's an especially brilliant guy, but I also think that he very much knows what works and connects with audiences. And at least in the kind of arts of, of, of marketing and publicity, which is really what he's done all his life, more than real estate, um, he's certainly operating at a more complicated level uh, that a lot of people who kind of come to politics from, from uh, law or public service or whatever, but are really kind of amateurs when it comes to the spectacle dimension of politics. So I think it's always better, especially if you um, are uh, running against him. It, it's never good to uh, underestimate your enemy. Um, and I think that, that again, this sort of trap that, that liberals tend to, and it goes back to what we said about educational polarization, but this trap into which they fall in which you know, they, they, they associate um, opposition with, with unintelligence is, you know, whether or not it's true is not very helpful as a political strategy because it just kind of guarantees you're always underestimating your opposition. That reminds me of earlier, I said I want to come back to it, but fake news or the distrust of media or... How does that affect rhetoric or how is that or how is that rhetoric in itself even? Yeah, I think it does quite a bit because, you know, part of the, the you know, the assumptions and sort of classical understandings of rhetoric is that we're all um, we're, we're interpreting a set of facts differently, but we can at least agree on what the facts are um, because there has to be kind of a, a basis for persuading people. You know, when you're trying to persuade people, you're accepting that you're in a political community with them. And what, what makes you in a political community together is partly that you have a you know kind of common picture of the world that you could say something that that even if I don't persuade you and win you over because I haven't chosen my words rightly, there is something that conceivably could. There's something that conceivably might change your mind, um, and that becomes increasingly more difficult um, when people are hostile to facts that don't confirm their worldview, or when people have kind of partisan sets of facts. And again, I don't want to act like this is a totally new sort of thing, but I think that it it does undermine the possibility of persuasion because um, there's always a reason not to be persuaded if you don't want to, uh, when you have your own set of facts. I, I don't know if you know Neil Stevenson, but he, he, um, he's written some pretty good and perceptive books about, uh, you know, both about kind of sci-fi, but also about kind of the, the near future and, and writes a little bit about near future politics. Uh, and one book called Fall, I think he talks a, a little bit about, you know, he's sort of projecting about the growth of, of fake news uh, in, in the next uh, generation or so. I think one of his characters says something like, you know, the, the, the importance of having a common set of facts is that it, it, it means that less powerful people can, can challenge power because they have a basis on which to do so. That You can kind of appeal to something that is outside of power to say that you, you might be powerful, but you can't kind of change what the facts are, that there are, there are ways for confronting um, economic, uh, social, political, cultural power because power can't necessarily dictate the facts, even if it can dictate lots of other things. You know, that, that's sort of an idealized view, but I think it's kind of interesting. And his point was, if the ability to create reality um, and to create your own sets of facts just becomes another function of power, um, you know, just a function of who has the money and the resources to be able to put a alternate set of facts out there that is going to be believable to enough of the to you know to enough of the public, then that sort of you know that sort of sets back a lot of the progress that we've made in trying to come up with democratic ways of holding the powerful to account. It's necessarily a less democratic world in which you can do that because it's a world in which it's even more difficult than it is now uh, to challenge the powerful. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it because I think people kind of, I, I, I'm sure this is out there, but in my experience, I haven't seen a lot of the direct connection uh, between uh, fake news and alternate facts with things like 
political and economic power. And I think that that was really interesting of him to draw out that connection in a different way. And feeding into, uh, say, like presidential debates, I saw somebody ask you something similar on the Reddit, ask me anything. Uh-huh. But presidential debates, I heard in other countries, they'll give a politician an hour to just talk about whatever they want to talk, kind of like uh, when Bernie Sanders won Joe Rogan, like that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. But today, if you watch CBS or CNN or Fox News, wherever the debate is on, you sort of have this big question like, uh, what would you do to fix climate change? And the politician will have like a minute to give a thought provoking response or explain what they're going to do. It seems like you can't really have the whole rhetoric or you can't have a whole explanation in such a short time frame. Yeah, no, I think I think that that's 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 really a part of it. You know, when you think about um, one thing that I've studied when I've I've studied classical rhetoric, and I look at the records we have of speeches that, that Cicero made at Rome or that Demosthenes made in ancient Athens. You know, these are arguments that are made to groups of ordinary people, groups of ordinary people who are uh, illiterate for the most part. You know, certainly don't have the kind of education that, that we take for granted now. Um, and, and they're hours long. They make pretty complex arguments. They really challenge people's powers of, of memory. Uh, and, and critical thinking and reasoning. And I don't want to idealize that kind of political system because there are plenty of things wrong with it. But I think it just, you know, when you look at what public, you know, you look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates in American history, when, when you look at what public audiences have been able to uh, make sense of and assimilate and think about critically in the past, uh, people have a lot more capacity than I think we often give them credit for. Um, ordinary people, even illiterate people, um, can. Um, be just as engaged listeners as anyone else, you know, for, for hours at a time. You know, of course, there are lots of reasons why uh, we don't have that kind of um, uh, public culture anymore. Um, you, know, you have to think that, that in these times, there wasn't any kind of media to compete with the spoken word. I think one thing that someone pointed out that was really interesting when I was studying the history of rhetoric was that um, in, in ancient times, uh, when, when the rhetoric developed, um, Speech and language and talk are kind of expensive. There, there aren't really kind of effective, cheap ways to distribute your words other than by getting a bunch of people together and speaking to them. And because they're only going to be together once you, you and there's nothing else for them to really do on that day, um, you, you can speak for hours and expect they'll pay attention because there's, there's nothing to distract them. Of course, as it gets cheaper and easier to distribute your words through, through the printing press and then later on through radio and TV and the internet and so on, um, there's just a lot more language or persuasion everywhere. Um, bad, um, but it does challenge the possibility of putting together a coherent argument, and it does kind of mean that people are being sort of pers- persuasion, just kind of the swim, the see you swim in now. It's just kind of you you are saturated in, in attempts of people to change your mind uh, every time you you open your computer or your phone, and I, I think what this means, I think, is that people will be a little less critical and self conscious of, of trying to be persuaded. I think people are a little less aware of persuasion. Um, because it's everywhere and it's all around you. So I think part of part of the the answer is trying to be mindful about the persuasion that is happening and aware of attempts to make you change your mind because they, they, they literally surround you all the time, um, which is a little bit different than the sort of ancient model that a lot of these theories of rhetoric developed in the beginning, which is you, you know when you're in a context when you're trying to be persuaded because it's very clear that that is what is going on. Um, it's not an everywhere all the time thing. It's a discrete event that happens that you are, you, you try to think through. Um, and yeah, again, I, while, while not wanting to idealize, I think one of the good things about that kind of setup is that it, it helps people 
think about the fact that someone is trying to persuade them. They're aware of what's going on in a way that it's a lot harder to be aware about the persuasion that is around you all the time right now. Um, all of which is to say, you know, to the extent that you can be mindful about it, and to the extent that we can uh, teach people to be aware of it and critical of it, I think that's going to, you know, make a more informed public, even if it doesn't fix people's attention spans, which is sort of a bigger problem. Yeah. Now I open Reddit, I open Twitter, I open Instagram, I see the TV. It seems like every millisecond is some new article or new video, and some just have no basis beyond it. Sometimes I'll just see a funny dog video or something, but mm-hmm. it's just this constant overwhelming of news or topics or look at this. And that's why they say this uh, younger generations have a shorter attention span because of sort of all the social media and whatnot. That's the argument. But in terms of uh, history and back from the beginning of rhetoric, I feel like you've already sort of explained a lot, but how has the original basis of what rhetoric is changed from then to today? Well, um, no, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think that part of it is, is, is like I mentioned, that it's a lot, you know, as you, as you mentioned, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's not a discrete thing that you show up for. It's something that surrounds you. It's, it's the water you swim in. Um, but also, you know, on the good side, um, you know, part of, part of how rhetoric has changed is that, um, it's something that's accessible to and able to be practiced by lots more people than ever before. You know, again, the, the classical situation that I was talking about, you know, rhetoric was even, even in a direct democracy like ancient Athens, rhetoric was the, for the most part, the property of, of elite uh, of elite males. And these were people who were um, elite wealthy males in slave owning societies who had leisure to do politics because other people were doing the work. Um, and a lot of the norms and ideas around how to be in public and how to how to how to do rhetoric grew out of this idea that rhetoric is basically it's it's the art of persuasion, but it's also this competition between groups of elite males. Um, and as democracy grows, you know, much much closer to the modern era, as you kind of get into the start of the era of mass democracy in uh, the 19th century and beyond, some interesting things happen. Um, you know, the mass media makes persuasion available. Um, to bigger numbers of people. There are more people who are able to persu- participate in persuading other people um, through um, you know, popular movements, through trade unions, through um, increasing participation of middle-class and working-class people in politics, You know, up to the, to the point now where anyone with a political message can, can go on TikTok and, and find a following for it. Um, and again, this leads to a lot of uh, chaotic stuff. It leads to uh, conspiracy theories and, and QAnon and, um, um, and, and you know, fake news and, and you know, you know, pylons that uh, don't really have any kind of standard of factuality. But it also means that, you know, that that's the downside. But the upside is that being able to be a, a persuader, being able to be someone like like an orator who can find an audience and speak in public is more open today than it has ever been, um, which I think means that the old kind of um, the, 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 the old ideas about rhetoric, the kind of assume doing the persuading is is of an elite stature um you need to catch up to the reality in that sense so rhetoric has its flaws but still it has its ups and downs that you just mentioned is there any critical thing you would fix about today's rhetoric if you could like any main thing you want people to look at or any main thing you want politicians to start speaking in terms of yeah well you know i, I talk a lot about about rhetorical risk and i talked about this in my um um, in, in my uh, in my book, I think that part of the 
you know, conditions that allow for the rise of, of demagogues and, um, and and manipulative, exploitive political rhetoric is the idea that, that mainstream politicians who have ordinary politicians aren't taking risks in the way they speak in public. Um, they are, uh, you know, they, they just as a matter of course, take you know, tremendous steps to make sure that uh, their messages are, are, are disciplined and in accord with uh, what's likely to be successful. Um, and again, I think that that's maybe kind of wise from a short-term perspective, but I think in the long-term, it's almost kind of disrespectful to the public they're speaking to because it doesn't really you know, put the speaker on an equal footing with the audience. It doesn't really put the speaker on equal footing with the audience because now the speaker is not really taking on any risk while still asking for the audience's time. I don't, I don't think it kind of expresses respect for the audience. So I guess what I would say is that one way that, that ordinary politicians can express more regard and respect for their listeners uh, is by, in a sense, throwing away the notes um, and, and trying to speak more uh, uh, spontaneously, spontaneously and riskily, even if that leads to bad consequences uh, for, for their careers. Uh, I know that's not likely to be a, to advice that anyone's likely to take, but I think that if you, you look to that, um, I think you can see a lot of the sources of, of the, the problems in in political rhetoric that we have now in an age of increasing uh, you know, demagoguery and populism. I like that idea, and I agree, but I also feel the concern for a politician where they'll say something wrong 20, 30 years ago, sometimes deservingly so, sometimes it's something small, but they'll say something way in the past that gets brought up and just ruins their career like mm-hmm. today. Yeah, no, I think I think what they do is is very irrational. Um, the, 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 the idea that they... Do not want to take those risks as a rational reaction to the to the consequences. So I guess um, I, I don't think that there's a that it makes sense for them to do what they do. Um, but I also think that um, that that maybe you know the public could be more critical about deciding when to kind of hold people accountable for those things and when to kind of let things go. Um, but also you know um, keeping one's career is is not the uh, the the be all and end all. That sometimes it's worth the taking risk with, with one's career, especially for, for people who are in public office and are probably going to land on their feet no matter what. Um, but again, that that's that's a hard thing to make people do, and this is why you know it's an ethical commitment that you would want to uh, take risk with your own career, even even at the risk of your own personal success. And this is why you know I think from from the time of the ancients onward, there's been this ethical commitment, ethical component to rhetoric that you can't just um, that, that part of being a good orator also has to do with the qualities that you show as a person, as an ethical actor, um, and that there are some problems you can't solve without thinking about how to make people who participate in oratory uh, better citizens and better people. Um, easier said than done, I know, but I think that's why the rhetoric and ethics have always been connected and should still be connected. All right. Sounds good. I think that's a good spot to wrap the show up. Rob Goodman, thanks so much for coming out on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate the time to talk about it. And the final, final question, is there any final message that you'd like to tell the audience? Oh, uh, read my book. <laughs> uh, Words on Fire, Eloquence in Its Conditions. Um, it's uh, available from Cambridge University Press. And uh, the uh, paperback's just like uh, 20 or 30 bucks. So uh, uh, take a look. And that was Rob Goodman. If you look in the description of today's episode, you'll see a link for his book. And if you're tuning in through the radio, I recommend checking out the podcast. If you check out the website, even there's a lot more content. Go to podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7 WHUS stores at the top of the hour and 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. Don't forget to give a five star rating, like, share the show, 
Every little bit helps. You can go to podcasttheway.com for more information. Again, podcasttheway.com. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Podcast